Greetings, Zimbabwe, Africa, and the world. Welcome to In Conversation with Trevor, brought to you by HSTV. I go beyond the headlines and beyond the sensational. Today, I'm in conversation with Eddie Cross, an economist, entrepreneur, and politician. Enjoy this fascinating conversation. Edward Graham Cross, otherwise known as Eddie Cross, welcome to In Conversation with Trevor. Thank you, Trevor. Eddie, you're so many things, and I'm looking forward to this conversation, uh, a life that's inspirational in so many respects. You were the chief economist of the Agricultural Marketing Authority, the CEO of the Dairy Marketing Board, the CEO of the Coal Storage Commission, the MD of the Beira Corridor Group. You are currently the chairman of Cross Holdings. You were one time, quite recently, the non-executive director of the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe. You were also a member of uh, the Monetary uh, Policy Committee uh, of the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe. This is uh, a life that has been well lived, a life where you've given quite a lot to, to this society. When you look back 81 years, Hmm. Um, what is life taught you, Eddie? It's taught me to value wisdom and humility. Hmm. Um, I've discovered during my life that intelligence is not enough. That you have to have, to have wisdom in, the, in your choices you make. And wisdom is far more important than virtually any other human attributes. And if you don't have humility, humility means you've got to listen more than you, more than you talk. Hmm. And you've got to you've got to understand you don't you don't understand everything you don't you're not all knowing uh, you're not you know you don't, intellectual arrogance I found is is a major major problem in our society mm. well in the world at large so I think those have been the main lessons that I've learned the other thing too of course is hard, no substitute for hard work mm. if you're going to get anywhere and I've been an aggressive executive during my life. You don't get to where I got before the age of 40 without being a very aggressive businessman. Mm. And um, I, I think that's essential to life, but at the same time, it's not particularly attractive. Mm. Which aspects of your life, which experiences taught you humility? Hmm. I had a great deal of success. I was businessman of the year in 19, before I was 38 years of age. Um, I handled a lot of big business. Um, we had a lot of success. And um, if you're not careful, it, it goes to your head. You know, you begin to actually think that you're more important than you actually are. And um, that the world is at your feet. And then I started a company after I left the Byra Corridor Group, our own family company, Cross Holdings. We built it up to 2,500 employees. We had uh, 11 companies. We, we were doing all sorts of things. And uh, we had very considerable success over a very short period of time. And then one of our companies, where I was a 50% stakeholder, um, went into liquidation. 
and the liquidator sequestrated me. Why? Because amongst the eight directors and shareholders in the company, I was the guy with the assets. Mm -hmm. So they felt that in order to get the, to recover the assets, they had to sequestrate me and the company involved. That was a huge, huge challenge. And, um, you know, anybody who's been through a liquidation, a failure like that, um, well, no, it's a fight. Mm. It took me four years wow. to pay our debts. I eventually paid all the debts of all the companies involved and came out of it clean. I was, I was, I was uh, rehabilitated and I was left with three companies still operating. And we've subsequently rebuilt that. And right now what I'm doing, when I resigned from Parliament in 2018, I decided I'd go back into business. Because I have a family, my family are here, my grandchildren are here, I have obligations. The Bible says you should provide for your grandchildren. And, um, and I'm busy trying to do that now in the mm. last few years that I've got of active life. Mm. Um, one thing that um, I found interesting is your decision to write this book, A Life of Sacrifice. A biography on uh, Emerson Nangagwa bio biography. Tell me, what made you do this? <laughs> what made you write this book? It's a really strange story. When they mounted the coup against Robert Mugabe in 2017, I was still a member of parliament in those days. Um, I've been part of the process to remove him from power. And I was having lunch with friends in Bulawayo. And I got a phone call from Kwekwe. A young voice said to me, Mr. Cross, the president would like to see you. And it was Emerson Munangagwa. I said, well, I'm in Bulawayo. He said, well, he wants to see you this afternoon. You were still a member of parliament still for a member of MDC. Parliament for MDC. Mm -hmm. So uh, we, wrote, we drove through to Kwekwe, and um, I found four ministers waiting for me. They weren't be, hadn't been sworn in yet, but July Moyer and a couple of other guys. And uh, he was not there. He said he'd had to return to Harare, but they said, he wants your ideas on what's wrong with the country, and what needs to be done to put it right. Well, what do you do when you're asked to do that? Of course I said yes. So I sat down and wrote a 22-page document, which was handed in to the transition team the following Friday. He read it, and on Sunday I was told that it was going to be part of the 100-day program. And sure enough, after the cabinet was sworn in on the and, and sat for the first time on Tuesday, my paper was in the, the papers of all the ministers. And I then got called by a number of ministers to say, what, what do we do about this? How do we tackle this? Mm. You say this is the issue. And so I spent the next couple of months, in fact, frankly, helping the new government mm -hmm. with what I saw as being the critical issues. And... Uh, in the process, had a meet, couple of meetings with this man. Um, the last time he, I'd had any direct contact with him 
was in 1983 when I was general manager of the dairy board. And uh, Gokuru Hundi had just started. And we had had a couple of thousand people murdered at Lupani. Mm. And the Catholics in Lupani had called me and given me a report on what was happening. And I contacted the president's secretary, the prime minister's secretary, Charles Oteti, mm -hmm. and said, Charles, this is no good. Subsequently, I sent a report to three heads of state in Europe, asking them to put pressure on Mugabe. When I did that, when I came back home, I got a warning from Emerson not to do it again. And, uh, and to say, this is none of your business. Charles Oteti said the same thing to me. But I said to Charles in 1983, I said, Charles, this is going to come back to bite you. You can't behave like this and get away with it. Mm. So then I met this man, and um, I, was, I was frankly surprised. Mm. He, he genuinely wanted to do the right things. And uh, he said to me fairly early on when I tackled him on political issues, he said to me, Eddie, you lead the politics to me you deal with the economics. Mm. So then the election came, he won the election, and again he turned back to me, he asked me, Eddie, would I participate? I had retired from politics at that stage, and the new Minister of Finance asked me to be an informal advisor. In fact, the moment Mtuli arrived in town, he hauled me into his hotel room and said, right, let's get moving. And uh, so I found myself really in the thick of things. And then out of the blue, the publishers contacted me and said, Eddie, would I be prepared to write a biography mm. on Emerson Munangagwa? And I said, well, you know, a sitting president, all this history. I said, yes. So I was paid a fee. Uh, paid what, a what, what, what made you say yes? I'd been impressed with his attitude. Mm -hmm. um, he genuinely, I believe, wants to put Zimbabwe on a new track. Mm. And I think as a citizen, as an African, I have an obligation mm. with my history, with my knowledge, my experience, to, to play a role if I can. Mm. And so if you're called to serve, I think you should respond. Mm. You also said yes when he said to you, Write, write for me a number of ideas in terms of how we turn around yes. the economy, the 20-page um, um, document, at the time when you were a member of MDC. Again, share with us your thinking process. You, could you not have said no? Yes, of course, yes. But why did you say yes? Well, with the death of Morgan Zangarai, who had been a personal friend for many years, when I was chairman of the Employees Federation of Zimbabwe, he was the Secretary General of the Trade Union Movement. And we developed a relationship which morphed into me joining MDC in 1999 and becoming Secretary for Economic Affairs. And I spent the rest next 17 years in the national leadership of the MDC with all of its problems, you know, assassination attempts. I had a shooting incident against me. I was threatened by the CIO. You, could, you name it. Typical politics. And... Um, but when Morgan died, um, I, really, I really felt that I, I, I couldn't support the new leadership and, um, because I really felt they were on the wrong track. 
So I retired from politics. Mm -hmm. I said, right, I'm quitting politics. I'm not going to mess around. And, uh, and I said I would go back into business. So, but when he asked me to, to help him, it was for, e for economic problems. And I recognized that if you can't solve the economic problems of the country, if you can't put this country onto a new path, we're actually going to go nowhere. Mm -hmm. If there's going to be a future for the young people of this country, it's going to be on the basis of us adopting proper economic policies. And you know, from the time I, in the Rhodesian government, I was de seriously critical of the policies of Ian Smith, mm. which were isolationist, insular. They, di they didn't build up a competitive economy. Sure, it was self-sufficient, but it was based on closed borders. It was China, pre-Deng Xiaoping, mm. but under a white nationalist mm. government. And, um, and I felt if we didn't change those, that, and then of course we had Mugabe, we had, you know, 37 years of, 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 of madness um, in economic terms. Mm. And I felt, and he, and, and he basically gave me a carte blanche. Now as an economist, as a businessman, I thought, wow, what a great opportunity. Mm. And then, of course, Mtuli. Mtuli has been a friend of mine for years. And uh, he arrives. And, I mean, I mean he's, he's a vastly superior economist to me. He's a real professional. Mm. Um, but I know the country. He didn't know the country. Mm. I knew what worked here, and I knew what didn't work. And I remember the first night we had a chat. I said to him, if you want to really discover Zimbabwe, call the street vendors from Robert Mugabe Street, just across the road from Meikle's Hotel. Mm. Get them in. And he did. He brought them in. These are the money changers and the traders on the corner. Had a bar set up, gave them a drink and talked to them. I said to them, you talk to those guys. That's the real economy. Those are economists, right? Those, there. And, those, and those guys are sharp. Mm. You, tell me, you, you say when, after Morgan Sangirai died, you felt that this is not the, that you couldn't be part of MDC, you couldn't support that leadership. Why? Can you unpack that for us? Yeah. Look, I think Jimmy Sir is a sharp guy, okay? But he's still a kid. And um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. You know, the Chinese have a saying if you're going to ride the tiger, you've got to be able to stay on. And I didn't think that he had the wisdom. I didn't think he had maturity. The one thing I loved about Morgan Swingerai's heart for the people. It never wavered. Um, and he was not a... Humility. Humility, absolutely. That word? A absolutely. All, all, the, all the, you know, I don't think, I don't think he did a great job of being prime minister. Mm. I was disappointed in that. Mm. But the man himself, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that people loved him. You could Morgan, go with Morgan anywhere in the country, and, and it was just extraordinary. It was a great privilege to, to work with him and, to, frankly, to serve him. It was a real privilege for 17 years. But the new leadership that was coming up, Manzura, you know, and look at the mess. Just look at the mess, you know. And, uh, and I just simply felt, I mean, I had written the manifesto for the 2018 elections. Mm -hmm. They just ignored it, just brushed it aside. Mm -hmm. And um, I just thought, well, you know, okay, they must get on with it. New mm. generation, 
let them let them let mm. them go. I, I was past. I'm the past. Mm. They're the future. Mm. What's going to happen in 23? I don't know. Mm. But um, so so new generation. They you are the past. They are the future. You're writing this book. Um, I've, I've read it. I've taken time to, to, to read it. And in the introduction, you say, Amazon is set to manage and control a transition to a new dispensation, which might just put this country onto a new democratic and progressive path to the future. Mm -hmm. Do you still believe that uh, President Nangagwa has that capacity? He has the will. It is his, his intention. Capacity, you've seen in the past two and a half, three years, how the old elements in the Zanapia party have really been resisting change. Mm -hmm. You know, there are so many similarities between the transition from Mao Zedong to Deng Xiaoping in China. Mm -hmm. First of all, the transition was managed by the military. It was the Red Army that maintained stability in China during the transition from Mao Zedong. Mm -hmm. Mao Zedong had died, of course, um, and nothing happened until he died. But it was the Red Army that then put Deng Xiaoping in, in power. In many ways, it was the Zimbabwe Army that put Emerson Monangagwa and, and kept him in power. There was a time during the coup when uh, Mugabe said, offered the, the leadership of the country to the man who was at that time head of the army. And, uh, and the young soldiers at Cranbourne Barracks who were running the coup were asked, would you permit this? And they said, absolutely not. It's Emerson that I, we want as president. And he, he then went through a period of time when he, you remember the reform statement mm, after, mm. after the coup, mm. which everybody reacted so positively and said, In, Including me. Yes. I said, I stood up and New said world. at the Sheraton that let's give uh, Emerson Nangagwa a chance. Yeah. I believe yeah. he's got the will. Yeah. But my question is, does he have the capacity? Well, I think he's demonstrated in the last three years his capacity. The, this is a tough guy. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> this is a man who can ride the tiger. I would not want to like to be an opponent of Emerson. Because mm. uh, I think you might have a rough ride. Mm. But having said that, um, he's tried to be very careful to build consensus. But his post-2018 cabinet, of course, was a completely new dispensation. There's 20 ministers, mm. six of them professionals without any political legs. Mm. And since then, you've seen he's appointed the new minister of agriculture as again mm. a man without political legs. Uh, and that's a problem for him mm. uh, because the problem is that there, there's now only in Zimbabwe, there's only one center of power. Mm. And, um, Which can't be healthy. It's not healthy and it can't, it's not sustainable. So his challenge for the next period is to build a consensus, build a new dispensation back into the power structures of the, of, of, of the government. And I don't think it's going to be an easy task. Mm. I take it that um, reading the book, it's been signed by uh, Emerson Nangagwa. 
I take it that he 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 basically agrees with most of the things that you've said in the book. When I had my first interview with him related to the book, he told me frankly, he was very, very cautious. You know, he said, what are you doing right He's publicity shy, isn't he? Oh, yeah, very much so, mm. for, as an individual. Yeah. He, uh, in fact, he told me, not, nothing about my family, please. You don't interview any of my children. So, I'm, strictly, he was the the one major source of the information about about his own life, mm. apart from what's in in the public and what's in the archives. Mm. Archive, we we were given complete access, um, and uh, so <clears throat> he was very w cautious, very wary. So we produced the first draft, only fifty thousand words, because it's mainly pictorial. And he went through it. Then he appointed a, an editorial committee, including a professor of history, mm. guys he trusted. And they came back to me and said, look, these are areas where are, are sensitive in terms of his role as president. You can't say this. And I said, all right, I'm prepared to modify those sections. I did. I rewrote those sections. And, um, and I didn't think it, 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 it influenced the overall message of the, of the book. I thought that it was remained fairly mm. accurate in terms of who he is, mm. and uh, and then it went forward. Then he allowed it to be published. Mm. So there's a couple of things that surprised me, um, or rather, before I go there, what surprised you the most as you were working on this book? Is there anything new that you discovered? Well, take the title. Mm -hmm. Life of Sacrifice. Mm -hmm. The one thing I really learned, this was a guy who started from nothing. He grew up in a village in Zeshavani. He herded cattle and goats <coughs> for his family. His family were poor, just peasants. Uh, he was given very limited opportunities for, for education, but he was naturally intelligent. Mm -hmm. And this natural intelligence is the thing that has carried him right the way through. The second thing was, although he was very much, in my view now, having looked back on the 37 years of Mugabe, and remember I supported Mugabe in, at Independence. Mm -hmm. I was in the transition team at mm -hmm. Independence. I trained the first cabinet at Independence. I wrote the, some of the papers for the first donors conference. I thought Mugabe would usher in a new era for Zimbabwe. and. Uh, took me some time to discover that he was a bit of a monster. Mm -hmm. But what I discovered looking at his life was that he had really been the power behind the throne. If there was some, was yes, the power behind the throne. Absolutely. He was the intellectual. Yeah. You know, I always thought Mugabe was brilliant, but the political strategist was this man. Mm -hmm. And uh, for example, he ran every election after 1980. He did. He was the chief elections agent for, for the president in every election. He was chairman of the JOC for 37 years. Ultimately, right up to the five years before Mugabe retired from power, the, it was the JOC that basically ran the country. We had a, a junta running Zimbabwe. And he was at the center of that power. And despite that, he, in, in 2014, he approached M, uh, Morgan with an offer to form a national government 
to remove Mugabe from power through a military coup and to form a national government. Mm. And discussions took place over three months on a highly confidential basis uh, between the two men, very personal. In the end, Mugabe, what Morgan said, I laid down five conditions for any kind of GNU mm. with Emerson. Mm. And Emerson said, too tough, mm. and turned away from it. Now, one of the things that impressed me, and I, 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 I used the illustration of David and Saul. Yes, you do. On the, on the back of the book. Yeah. Because although David had been, had been identified as the next king of Israel, he remained loyal to Saul, even when Saul was trying to kill him. And the parallels there with, with Emerson's relations to, to, to Mugabe are, are, are amazing. Um, so he supported Mugabe. And even when he had come to the conclusion after 2013 that Mugabe was no longer capable of really running the country, that he was becoming geriatric, um, he remained in public loyal to the president because he was my president. And it was only when Mugabe decided to remove him from, first of all, tried to kill him, and then decided to remove him from power, from the vice presidency, that he finally did. And he went home and on that Monday morning. He was removed from the vice presidency at 9 o'clock. He went home at midday. And the policeman had been removed from the front gate. And the moment he saw that, he said he was finished. He then, he then fled the country. Interesting that you say he was the power behind the throne, yeah. that he ran Jok, that he ran the elections. Mm which would mean that he should take responsibility for the manner in which the elections were conducted, they were violent. Joke was basically uh, a repressive uh, junta kind of thing. You say in the book, or he says in the book, that government is a collective. No one man can take responsibility for decisions made by the government. But in this book, you proceed to say that uh, Gukurawundi, Muramba, and Muramba Swina were the responsibility, Mugabe should take responsibility for that. Am I right? In, yes. In, in, yeah. How do you reconcile that? Well, take, take Gukurawundi. He was, the, he was young, he was under 30, uh, his youngest minister in the cabinet. He was minister responsible for state security. I've got no doubt about it. He knew exactly what was going on, um, but he was not running the show. It that Gukurahundi was direct orders of Mugabe, mm -hmm. and um, <clears throat> you know Mugabe could not tolerate opposition. And uh, when Zapu was really the only effective opposition in the country, I mean, I was a friend of Joshua Nkomo. Nkomo used to come to my home in Bulawayo in a desperate state. Um, you know, I was general manager of the Coal Storage Commission. I used to take him out to the ranches. We'd go and look at cattle together mm -hmm. because he was in a, he, 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 I mean, I can't describe his, his, his total anguish over what was happening. You know, the denial of food, um, the, the mass killings. I think the I think Kurundi the death rate was much higher than which had been predicted. Absolutely, I think much higher. I think if there was memorial to the people who died during Kurundi, it would contain tens of thousands of names. 
I mean, more than 1.2 million people fled the country. And, um, you know, it was a time of terror. Mm. Um, but, so he, he is not taking responsibility. Uh, I, I think he, the book, but, in the book, but he knew, but he knew, he, knew exact, he knew exactly what, when I, when I wrote that letter to the three heads of state in, 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 in Europe, um, and somehow he got hold of a copy. Uh, I, I was suspect it was the foreign secretary for no Norway. Mm -hmm. In some way, whether whether his office was bugged or whether uh, the Russians made the document available, he got the document. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I came back from the trip, he I was called in uh, by my minister, minister of agriculture, and who put the document in front of me and said, Eddie, are you responsible for this? And I said, yes. Mm -hmm. I said, I, I appealed to these three prime ministers to call Mugabe, who was prime minister, mm -hmm. and to say, look, you can't do this. And that was in 19, and it was 18, 20, and 20, 1883, just the beginning of Gugurundi. And, uh, but the message from, conveyed to me by the Minister of Agriculture from Emerson as Minister of State Security mm -hmm. is don't do it. <sighs> I took it as a warning, as a threat, mm. but also at the same time as a, as hey, mm. Eddie, this is dangerous. Mm. Don't get involved. I got the sense that the book is trying to clear him of responsibility, of uh, Rambatsina, uh, of uh, uh, Gukurawundi, and also of um, Cholocho, in a way. Um, mm. uh, you know, the blame, not the blame, but you know, Jonathan Moyo is, the is you know, was was behind was the, mm. was behind the plot, and one other thing that uh, I found surprising is the, the, the there's no shyness about talking about tribalism within the party. Yeah, the fact that he was stopped for a long time uh, to to become uh, president because he was Karanga and that the Zizuris within the party yeah. uh, were fighting ag against him. Talk to me about that. Well, let's, let's, let's take first the issue of, 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 of um, um, Trilocho. Mm -hmm. I have been briefed in great detail by the actual participants in the Trilocho meeting. It was stuff that I felt I could not write. Okay. Okay. But the one thing that came out of that was that the men who gathered at Chilocho felt that Emerson was the next, legitimately the next president of Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. And if anybody was going to replace Mugabe and Zanu-PF, it would be Emerson Mnangagwa. Mm -hmm. And um, they, <clears throat> and Emerson refused to attend the meeting. He refused to be associated with it. Um, that I do know. And that's accurate. It's mm. not, not conjecture. It's not from the newspapers. Mm. But the one thing Mugabe could not take was any kind of succession. Mm. Um, he, he would just simply not tolerate it. And it's a problem of Africa, you know, throughout. Uh, you look at the, after Mandela relinquished power in South Africa, mm. the struggle for power, mm. Ramaphosa was his chosen successor, mm. but other elements in the party wanted Mbeki and then Zuma, and now it's Ramaphosa. Um, I think I think that tribalism played a great role, a, a huge role. Um, I think Mugabe was a tribalist. 
What I did find fascinating about Emerson's background was the relationship between the Karanga and the Indiberi, which I had, I knew the Kalanga had been subjugated by the Indiberi and virtually integrated into the Indiberi nation. But I didn't realize that his grandfather had been the head of an impi. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can't be more involved so that the, the Karanga and the Indibelia, the Roswe, you mm-hmm. know, the king, the king they, they were very much uh, in charge. Mm. And, um, and you all know the Rhodesian army was mainly made up of Karanga and Indibelia soldiers. Um, and in the struggle, mm. of course, you had the, the Zipra army, uh, which was likewise. Um, mm. uh, what, what, what would be your response, uh, Eddie, if I said, I get the sense that this book is more of a PR job than anything else. What's your response to that? No. 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 I, I, I try to be very honest. Look, he's a sitting president. That's a big statement, that. <laughs> okay. There are some things you can't write. Yeah. So okay. why did you take it then, if it's going to compromise you? Because I felt he needed understanding. Okay. Because I genuinely feel, and look at, look at the track record the last three years. Mm. Look at when, when Mtuli was recruited to become Minister of Finance. Do you think he wanted to come home? Mm. He was sitting in Switzerland in a huge job with a massive salary. Mm. His family didn't want to come home. His wife didn't want to leave Switzerland. His children did not want to leave Europe. On, on that and score, I, I actually gather, and correct me if I'm wrong, that when Mtuli was appointed, uh, he actually wanted you to be his former, formal uh, yeah. official advisor. And uh, I declined. You declined. I didn't okay. want to wear a suit. Okay. I All burnt right. my suits, okay. Trevor. Yeah. And I didn't want to be in an office. I didn't want... You talk about being compromised, mm. then you're in the system. Mm. If you get a salary and so on, you, you've got to basically, I, I like my independence. Mm. Okay. Now, but when he appointed Mtuli, I want to emphasize this, as Minister of Finance, he gave him, he said to him, right, I want you to put the economy right. And Mtuli told me, he said, he's got a mandate from, now Mtuli has no political legs. He has no power base. So he's totally dependent on the president. But you look at the TSP. The TSP was written before the election. So the president was totally in charge at that stage. It was then at the first cabinet meeting, like my paper in, in 2017, Mtuli's TSP was in front of every minister. They implemented 80% of the TSP. I was astounded. Hmm. Despite this... Look at what they did. They devalued the dollar. They introduced the new, the new currency. They took some tough decisions. They reduced the expenditure on salaries from 97% of all income to 40%. Well, in fact, it was down at 35% at one stage. I mean, those are tough decisions. That's not the act of a populist mm. president. Mm. That's the act of a man who knows... We've got to take the medicine mm-hmm. if we're going to put the economy back on, on. And look at the results. Today, Zimbabwe is growing strongly. I would suspect Zimbabwe today is the fastest growing economy in the world. Wow. You're very positive yeah. when, when it relates to uh, the way the economy is, is performing. 
Um, how, how do you justify that? Sometimes when I hear you talk or when I read the stuff yeah. that you write, I'm like, this man doesn't leave the same country where I, I live. Talk to us now about your assessment of our economic prospects right now, um, the, the, the forex management, um, as far as uh, you know, economic growth is concerned, uh, agriculture rebound, industrialization and so forth. Where, what are the key pillars and how are we doing on those pillars? Well, right, the, 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 the economy is a machine. It's an engine. Okay, and the main drivers of, 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 of power in the engine are mining, agriculture, commerce, industry, tourism, you know, those are the main drivers. And um, the, the blood of, of the whole system is the currency. We've had a problem for many, many years. I mean, adopting the US dollar was, a, was, was an act of desperation. Mm. I, I was in parliament when Chinamasa announced those key reforms, 15 minutes, no exchange control, no restrictions on gold marketing, adoption of the hard currencies yeah. as a means of exchange, boom, 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 boom. And <clears throat> I went up to him afterwards and I said, that was the most courageous thing I've ever heard in my life. And he just looked at me and he just sort of smiled rather sickly because what he was doing it was like a kid jumping off a swimming board with his nose, just eyes closed into the water. But the results were dramatic. Anybody who doesn't think that the Zimbabwean people work hard, that we're an innovative, enterprising people, just look at what happened in the first one month after that statement, mm. February the 17th, 2009. We went from no fuel. We had five years. I had not been able to buy fuel from, the, from any filling station. My fuel came from drums in back, backyards. The supermarkets were empty. TM supermarket in Borodale, 45 tool points. One was operating. Two shelves. There were some cabbages. Some, you know, I, you couldn't believe it. And in... 10 days, supermarkets were, there were no shortages of fuel. Supermarkets were filling up. In six weeks, this was a normal economy. I was queuing for, for at, at the, out, at, 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 in, in, in a supermarket in, 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 uh, in Borodale with my wife. And I got to the till and I looked at it and there's all these till operators, queues. And I said to the till operator, I said, hey, What's happened? And he looked at me and he said, Baba Cross, Tsongerai. <laughs> they gave Morgan the credit. Yeah. But it wasn't Morgan. It was Chinamasa. Hmm. It wasn't Beatty. It was Chinamasa. And all they did was let us free. Hmm. Let us go. And it the next, works. In the it next, free up people. In the next four years, Trevor, our economy grew by 70%, not 7%. 70% per annum in terms of the revenue to mm, the state. Mm. First year, 280 million US. Second year, 900. Mm. Third year, 1.7 billion. Mm. By 2013, the economy here was 4.3 billion. What are the lessons of that experience 
for where we are right now. That economic and political program is, inex is inescapably based on freedom. Mm -hmm. Freedom of choice, freedom of, 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 of uh, selection of leadership, freedom of movement, um, freedom to decide on prices, market-driven economics. And you know, we're, we're close. We're not there, we're close. Uh, one, of our, one, of our, one of the big things here is our economy is completely underestimated. I mean, I laugh at the IMF and the World Bank. I really do, because they have no understanding. You know, and, and the African Development Bank, you're oh, very critical of uh, those yeah. institutions, yeah? Yeah, they just don't understand. You've got an economy here which is maybe 60-70% informalized. You can't control the informal economy. You know, I, I don't know what proportion of our imports are smuggled, but I think it's, it's very high. It's very high. And any politician here who thinks he can control the economy by clamping down on this or that is, is living in a but, dream world. But that's what seems to be happening. Well, These touch instruments that are all over the place. Uh, it's the... It's the Dreamland. It, but also, it's based on 100 yeah, years. Yeah. I mean, the Rhodesian economy was tightly controlled. Exchange mm. control, all these things. I used to bitterly oppose mm. those things. Mm. I said we needed a weak currency. We didn't need a strong currency. At independence, the Zimbabwe dollar was worth two US dollars. Mm. Tell me now, talking about uh, the currency, mm. the Dutch auction that we have uh, in place at the present moment. I want your view of, of that. Because I'm looking, the numbers I got yesterday is, is we are almost one to eighty-six uh, on the, the auction. That's the auction rate, but I'm told that the uh, street rate is now anything between one thirty to the dollar uh, or one sixty to, to the dollar. Is the is the Dutch auction working? It was a compromise. <clears throat> um, what we should be doing is doing what they're doing in Mozambique and in, and in Zambia and in South Africa, whereas that all foreign currency receipts into the country are automatically changed into local currency, mm. and the rate at which the market sets the price is the exchange rate, which is the, what happens in Zambia mm. and in Mozambique. What happened here was that when I was appointed to the MPC, Monetary Policy Committee, um, we struggled for a year with the Reserve Bank saying there had to be a market for foreign exchange, a genuine market. Eventually, the president called us in, a group of us into the state house, and asked us frankly, we were sitting around the room, you might have even been there. No, no, I wasn't there. Okay, but, uh, yeah. okay. but certainly you were mm. in the president's yeah. advisory mm. council at that yes. stage. And he asked us, what, what's wrong and what do we do? And our consensus was that you have to have a market for foreign exchange, a real market for foreign exchange. So he, he sat on it for about two weeks and then he called the, he called the pre governor in and said, I want mm. the auction. Mm. Now we had tried to get the banks to auction foreign exchange between themselves with complete failure. They would not collaborate, they would not cooperate with us. The bigger banks, the banks with international connections argued that it was because of sanctions. If they traded with CBZ, 
they might be subject to sanctions themselves. I think that was fallacious. I do not accept that. I think what they wanted to do was they wanted to control, to continue uh, charging very yeah. high margins and charge and making profit out of the out of the situation, which they continue to do today. So the president instructed the governor, "You introduce a market." So it was the governor's decision, unilateral, mm. but under instruction from the president mm. to adopt the Dutch auction system. Mm. And when we discussed it, uh, we felt, okay, that's, at least it's a step in the right mm. direction. But my question is, is it working, given the differential, yes, it is. Oh. Given the differential that we have, Eddie? Now, wait a minute. I'll come on to the differential. Mm. At the time that it was adopted, more than 70-80% of the foreign exchange in the country was being traded on the informal market. 70-80%, maybe even more than that. With the auction, we suddenly moved a significant proportion of foreign exchange receipts onto the auction. The banks would not cooperate, so we were forced to take foreign exchange from the ex ex exporters and put it on the market. Mm. Initially, first auction of 15 million, now it's sitting at about $40 million a week. And I would say today that Today, we're exactly reversed to what we were at the beginning of the auction 18 months ago. I would say today, 80% of all foreign exchange is being traded at the auction rate and is going into the formal sector. Okay. Okay. A dramatic shift. Mm. So the informal sector is now much smaller. Now, the question is, what makes up the informal sector? The first thing is diaspora remittances. We have about 5 million adult Zimbabweans working abroad, 3 million in South Africa. If you just take the South African one, the, 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 the transfer system Makuru mm -hmm, has mm -hmm. 3 million clients in South Africa. The average transfer last year was 79 US dollars a month. That's $3 billion a year. South Africa, Chete. Okay, I believe that diaspora remittances are running at about $5 billion a year. They are by far and away the biggest source of foreign exchange. And none of it goes through the banks, or very little, mm. and none of it goes through the formal sector. Now, for those people sending money into the country to support education, health, and building. Building houses. There's a huge building boom underway. One I think there are nearly 1.5 million houses under construction in Zimbabwe. It's the biggest building boom in our history. It's in, I would say it's 70%, 80% funded by diaspora. Now, when they get their money, they change their money in the parallel market. And they are delighted with these rates because it makes everything that they do cheap. 160, 150? Oh, it's great for them. And I think it, it's almost like a tax on the formal sector in support of the informal sector. So if I'm a family in the rural areas and I get 100 US dollars and I trade it on the black market at 150 to 1, mm. everything that I buy becomes cheap or at least reasonably priced. If I pay my school fees at that price, you know, it's, it's easy if, in medical mm. services. Even building, you can should, build. Should we be comfortable with that gap? <coughs> is my question, Eddie. No. Okay. The question is, who is buying? 
And this is not a pretty story. We have a very big gold industry here. Oh. We are probably amongst the biggest gold producers in the world. And 70% of our gold production is by small-scale miners. And these poor guys, between 500 and 700,000, are subject to exploitation mm -hmm. by criminal gangs and traders who buy gold at a, at a, at a discount to the real market price. Mm. And these guys need US dollars in cash. And it is these people, these guys who are smuggling gold, first to South Africa maybe, some of it goes straight to Dubai, which is now the biggest gold market in the world. <clears throat> and they need US dollars to buy gold. You're right. And they don't mind what they pay for it. Now, what do they do with the gold? If it goes to South Africa, they sell it for rand. They then sell the rand to Zimbabwean importers at a premium. The Zimbabwean importers give them local currency at a premium. They then buy US dollars and they go back into the market buy gold. Now, this has produced a criminal elite here. The murders in the small-scale mining sector are horrific. So that's why the rate is where it is, the 160, 150? I think the other thing that's driving that is smugglers, mm. but also the fuel industry. Yeah. If you want to go out today and buy fuel, it's not available in local currency. I suppose I'm trying to say, what's the, what should we do to get that market to run in tandem with well, the I was, option rate? I was fascinated this week to see that they, for the first time, the Reserve Bank cut off bids at 84. Mm. Okay. That's the first time, well, it's the second time they've done that, uh, but it's the first time in recent months. And so the rate shifted from 85 to 86.2. Yeah. Slight devaluation. My feeling is we have to have a roadmap to a more normal foreign exchange market. Okay. That's my feeling. And I think once we do, there'll be a closing of the gap between the black market, always be a black market. In Zambia, there's a black market for US dollars. There will be a closing of the gap. But at the same time, we need to recognize greater stability. The private sector has access now to foreign exchange on a reasonable basis at a decent price. I believe at 86, the Zimbabwe dollar is undervalued. We have a balanced payment surplus. We have two billion US dollars in private accounts. Mm. Trevor, we've never had that. Eddie, um, let's go back to your childhood. Where were you born? Where did, which schools <coughs> did you go to? I was born in Bulawayo and I was raised in a place called Umzniatini mm -hmm. near Mbalabala. My chief was Simon Zagola. Mm -hmm. So when I was a child running around raised on a ranch there. Um, the children of Simon Scott, I knew them. Uh, to, I'm sure the present chief in, mm. in that area is, would, would have been known to me. Um, I went to North Lee, Milton School and North Lee in Bulawayo, graduated with a matric and uh, then at the age of 17 I went working. I went farming. I grew up I did a tobacco season in Mashonland, and then I went ranching in Madabiland. Why farming? I, that's what I really wanted to do. Okay. 
And then I went to Guibi. I got a diploma in agriculture, and then I spent three years in the Zambezi Valley, moving the Tonga people away from the the the, the, the Zambezi River with the construction of Kariba Dam. Dam yeah. yeah, we moved thirty thousand Tongas. Well, which which organisation were you working with? Then? With Native Affairs. Okay. Okay. And uh, so I was what they call a land development officer, <clears throat> and I moved. We had to move thirty thousand Tonga people out of the valley, up into the Sinyati, mm. and into the Gokwe area, mm -hmm. Nemudzia, all those places. I did that, and then I realised that I was getting a bit bush happy, and I, if I didn't get a degree, I wouldn't get very far. Mm -hmm. So I then went back to, I went to university, I went to the University of Zimbabwe, did a degree in maths, in uh, mathematical, e e maths and economics, economics. and uh, graduated in 67, and I joined the AMA as a junior economist. Mm. <clears throat> AMA, that's the Agricultural Marketing Authority, right. huge organization, at that time perhaps the biggest employer in, in the country. 25,000 employees, a turnover, annual turnover of nearly $3 billion a year. Massive. What what you worked, uh, where you worked, uh, and compared to what AMA is right now, how does it compare? Oh, no comparison at all. The AMA today is a joke. In fact, I don't really think it should exist. It, I, I don't think it has any re realistic mm -hmm. um, reason for existence. The AMA consisted of the four big state-run parastatals. Grain Marketing Board, Cold Storage Commission, Dairy Board, and the Cotton Marketing Board. Cotton Marketing Board was actually formed when, while I was an economist with the AMA. And uh, they were remarkable organizations, um, comparatively efficient, um, doing a good job, run as a business. Mm -hmm. The board of the AMA was, I would think, a collection of the top business people in the entire mm -hmm. country. So what ha what happened? Why is it where it is right now compared to what it was when you were running, when you were the uh, chief economist? The big the big problem with parastatals today is that their boards are appointed by politicians, and uh, the issue of patronage, tribalism. Um, so it's it's not a question of a meritocracy. If you listen to Chinese leadership today. The one thing they tell you about the reason why China has succeeded is because China at its core is a meritocracy. In fact, the other day, one of the leaders in the Politburo made the remark that no American, no American president in the last 10 years could have qualified for Chinese leadership. <laughs> and mm. it's true. Because, you know, their guys, they, they're absolutely at the top. It's much, much like the French mm. system, you know which produces these superb um, civil servants. Mm. And I think here, <coughs> that has been the main problem. Um, and uh, Mediocrity has crept into our parastatals. Taken over. Yeah. Taken over. Yeah. And then corruption. Mm. Corruption has become a huge issue. In my days, corruption was a problem. Let's not think that the Rhodesians were... Clean. Clean. The Afrikaners were not clean. I can tell you that for sure from my own experience. Um, but it was not pervasive. Mm. Whereas now, 
in many peristatals. I mean, yeah. Before I go on to the Dairy Marketing Board, which is a, a very um, inspirational story in many respects and your role there, there's a part of your life which um, is, is interesting to me. Your father was an alcoholic. Yeah. Um, talk to me about what that did to you, what that experience did to you. Right. He was a very clever man with a photographic memory. <clears throat> he should have been a professor of history. But his family were relatively not able to put him through university in South Africa. And so he came up, he joined a f an oil company, and he rose through the ranks very quickly. And then in 1930, he was told to come up to Bulawayo and take over the operation in Bulawayo, which he did. And he rose through the ranks there. And by the time he married my mother in 1939, um, he was a, a relatively senior executive. And basically social drinking, cocktail parties and so on. And, and it just, by the time I was five, mm. he was gone. He was gone. He was a raging alcoholic and he lost everything. What did that do to you? Well, it meant my mother had to raise four kids by herself. Now, she was a remarkable woman, Canadian, born in Canada, very limited education. Uh, but a very very good-looking woman mm. and, uh, and naturally intelligent, a bit like Emerson. I mean, Emerson's education history is just extraordinary, you know, um, and just shows plain guts. Mm. In her case, when my dad became an alcoholic, she had to go out to work, and she taught herself shorthand typing, mm. became a shorthand typist. Determination. Determination. And then became a PA to a foreign company here, a British company, and was very well paid. So she raised us as children and um, put us through school and so on. And then about, it was about 10 years after that, that my father woke up to where he was and in fact stopped drinking. Mm. And, uh, and he rejoined the family but at that, by that time, his career was shot. Mm. Um, so he became, he worked, worked for the railways. Mm. He went to Zambia, he was Secretary, General, Secretary of the Zambian Railways mm. pr prior to independence. And then after independence in Zambia, they nationalized his position and he returned to Rhodesia. And he couldn't find a job. Mm. Uh, and he became um, a a member of staff at the University of Zimbabwe. He ran, he ran the administration there okay. for Professor Craig, mm. who was then the chancellor, the vice chancellor. He loved that. He loved the environment. He loved being at university and so on. And so then, he was rehabilitated. Yes, yeah, yeah completely. Yeah. And uh, then um, he was injured in a Zandai attack in, in 1978 and was forced to retire. Mm. And he spent the rest, next, next 17 years living with us. Yeah. I'm a real African. I believe in the extended family. Right. I, I've heard um, uh, Kumbirai Katande uh, sit where you're sitting right now and uh, Herbert Nkana. And I have a lot of admiration for um, Meshek Nyampingiza. Uh, 
the common denominator for all those gentlemen is that they worked with you at uh, the Dairy Marketing Board when you were Chief Executive. You were appointed Chief, Chief Executive in 1979. And I said to Kumbirai, why is it that Dairy Board has been able to produce these amazing professionals who've gone on to be entrepreneurs? And uh, Kumbirai Katsandi sitting right where you're sitting, say, Trevor, I think it's in the milk. Explain to me why the Dairy Board has been so good at producing these professionals who've gone on to be amazing leaders and entrepreneurs. Well, <clears throat> when I was appointed chief executive by the Rhodesian government, or the Zimbabwe Rhodesia government, um, I recognized that the transition was underway. I mean, I was politically active even though I was not allowed to be. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I recognized that I would have one term. And during that term, I had to leave behind me black professional management. At that time, every manager in the dairy marketing board was white. There were no black executives at all. Mm. So what I did was I went out and I, 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 I found what I regarded as being top-class young blacks, students, graduates, mm. who I felt we could nurture. And I brought them in as executive trainees. And, uh, and it was a great success. Mm. I put them through the mill. They had to do everything. Yeah, but I mean, Kumbirai and, and Habit, uh, they do talk about their experience that it wasn't easy. It no. was tough. Yeah. But they are what they are right now because of that toughness, which yes. you were part of. Yeah. And I believe hugely in the German approach to skills adoption, where you've got to actually bring people into working business environments and, and teach them how to operate. Mm. And I, I, maybe I was lucky. I was mm. very lucky with Kumbarai. I, of the of the young of this team of young executive trainees, Kumbarai was my choice as my successor, and I was I was very fortunate that he was in fact appointed. Mm. When the president took me from the dairy board and put me into the CSC, where there was a crisis, mm. and um, <clears throat> and he was able to smoothly take over, and and I think the the record of the dairy board is is one of comparative success both in terms of its privatized entity and prior to that mm. also a guy of great integrity mm. um, well you know Katsadi well mm. Mm. and today he's one of the top businessmen in the country absolutely yeah. I have so much respect respect for him you 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 and the family uh, took a tri a six week trip to Europe and you said when you came back you decided to have a, a diary and uh, you made a decision as a family that you were Africans. And you talk passionately about um, a third generation revolution. Could you talk to us about the, being, the awareness of white privilege? Growing up as a white Rhodesian, you were privileged. And, and, and your passion right now that there is a band of young uh, Zimbabweans, both black and white, who are going to take this country to, to a different place altogether. Talk to me about those two issues. Well, <clears throat> one thing I discovered very early on when I was a white manager recruiting black young people, students and graduates 
and putting them into a position of responsibility. I discovered very quickly <clears throat> that if they did not have a reasonable history of educated parents, if their parents had been peasant farmers, then the cultural baggage carried by these young people was often too big for them to manage. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I adopted a deliberate strategy of recruiting young people who had educated parents in some form or another. Yeah. And what I see now, I see now a third generation. We, we're now, this is the third generation after independence. They, they, they don't know anything about the Liberation War. Mm, mm. They don't know the struggles that went on. But they've been well educated. Let's face it. The first five years of Mugabe's rule was here, awesome for education. Oh, we built a we built a primary school every day. Every day we opened a primary school. We built eighty district hospitals. I mean, it was amazing uh, to be. It was very exciting to be involved in that. Um, and it, and it gave this whole generation opportunity to get an education. We became the best educated country in Africa, mm. maybe almost in the world, the highest rates of literacy. I mean, even the United States, 30% of students coming out of school in the States on, can neither need, read nor write. It's, mm. it's pathetic, mm. you know. And uh, I mean, this American education system is, is to my view, is, is, is apart from the elite elements, is, is catastrophic. But here we had this generation, and now they, their children, are now many of those young professionals left the country mm. because of Mugabe, mm. and they've not only got a good education, but now they've got experience. Now many of those young people, and, and what's happening now is very exciting to me is the grandchildren are coming They're home. Coming back. They're coming home, and uh, when they come back, they're coming back with knowledge, background, and experience. And they are starting to transform this, this economy. Hmm. I mean, you, you have, a look at, have a look at agriculture. We've got now probably a couple of thousand young people farming here, and they are doing amazing things. Um, I mean, you know, look at tobacco. Look at look at uh, look at look at the blueberry industry. Mm -hmm. mm. Uh, it, it suddenly it's all taking off. Look around you. Go to Pomona outside Harare here, yeah. and just look at all those new factories, all those new businesses. I see them. I see them. All third generation. They're coming back home. They're coming home. They're they're picking up in some cases businesses which mm -hmm. were just mediocre and they're transforming them. I mean, I broke my arm three weeks ago. Nine o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock I was in hospital, two o'clock I was un in surgery under a world-class medical doctor who's come home. Mm -hmm. And five o'clock I was in recovery, the following day I was released. I got world-class treatment, Trevor. And this is the third generation. And you can go into businesses here. You know, I, I just look, for example, just look at Zimplatz. Mm -hmm. You know, five and a half thousand employees, 
$2.5 billion company, totally 21st century, top technology, top results, three whites, no expatriates. Every, chief ex every executive in there is a black, black. Zimbabwean. Third generation. So you, you're very positive about where this country is going. Look, that's the, that's the future. Mm. My big concern now is that we are not maintaining our education standards. Mm. We're not spending enough on education. Mm. And I think that uh, the, the, there's a real danger that the gains we, we made from the early days of independence are being lost right now. Mm. Um, and I think that we've got to be very, very careful about that. I think we've got to pay much closer attention uh, to education than we're doing at the moment and skills transfer. Mm. But, but I think, Trevor, the foundations have been laid mm. for very rapid growth here. I think Zimbabwe could become a real example. I love to hear that. I love a real example that, in Africa. Tell me, yeah. so we've received uh, a billion dollars, US dollars, right. from the IMF. Um, two issues that I, I want to ask you. W what's the best way that this money ought to be used? How do we deploy it? First question. Secondly, where do we deploy it rather? Um, and how do we use it? And secondly, accountability, transparency. Um, what measure, measures ought to be in place to ensure that there's confidence from the private sector and the citizens that this money is not going into private pockets? First of all, Trevor, it's not a lot of money, okay? The IMF and the World Bank might think they're the big boys in the game. They're not, okay? It is big in terms of Africa. We got three times the allocation to Zambia. And that might be a little bit of the IMF feeling guilty because last year they denied mm. us our money. Mm. So that's the point number one. Point number two is I'm completely satisfied that the team at the Ministry of Finance will manage these resources properly. There'll be no, no, no nonsense. It'll be transparent. It'll be spent properly. The third is, if we spend that on consumption, we are crazy. We should spend it on building our productive capacity. Our industry needs complete transformation. If, I mean, I used to take visitors around the Dairy Marketing Board in 1980, they'd say to me, Eddie, we've never seen equipment like this still operating. Mm. This is a museum, an industrial museum. Frankly, that's the state of the majority mm. of our mm. companies. We need modern equipment. Mm. We need modern technology. And above all, I think we have to facilitate the, the, our, our industry uh, getting, those, getting the new technology and new equipment. And I think the, pres the minister is going to do that. I think a significant proportion is going to go into that. And I think the way he's going to do it is very, very clever. Because he's, he's going to use the funds on a revolving basis. Okay. It's very clever. And, and uh, lastly, before we go to, to books, the uh, deal to compensate uh, uh, the, the farmers, where is that deal? Has it been satisfactory? Um, uh, are we in a happy place as far as uh, land compensation is concerned? Look, it was always going to be a compromise. Mm. <clears throat> uh, the $3.5 billion negotiated as compensation for the assets taken is a small proportion of their real value. But it was a deal negotiated. 
between the government and the farmers and 95% of the farmers accepted the deal. So I think the deal has to be fulfilled mm -hmm. and the president agrees with that. Mm -hmm. The president is absolutely determined. So it's been extended now and the commitment is to pay these farmers by July next year. And that is giving one Mtuli Ngubi nightmares. Headache. Headaches. Okay. He doesn't sleep at night over that. I think it's going to happen, but it's going to take a massive effort on all mm. our parts and mm. the international community. Mm. To, and I think it is just. Mm. It'll be about a, less than a million US dollars for each family. Many of those families are destitute mm. today. I think one of my big question marks remains, what happens to the 300,000 farm workers mm. who were employed by these guys? They're not catered for. They're not catered for in any way. So it's an outstanding issue. Yes, for me, that's an outstanding issue and mm. nobody's addressing it. Mm. And mm. I think that's a pity because I think that is something which we're going to have to look at mm. in, in the longer term. Mm. But I think it's going to get done. Uh, we're working hard on it and uh, it'll need a bit of luck. And you know, in business, Trevor, you need a bit of luck. You do. Okay. You, do you do need some breaks from time to time. You know, talking of... Um, um, are you happy with the state of the relationship between the private sector and the government? I get a sense that there's mistrust. The government doesn't trust business. Business doesn't trust government. And yet we need to work in concert for us to make a, a progress as a nation. What's yeah. your sense? Any, any man who's plowed with cattle, with oxen, will know that the two oxen have to work together or else you don't do a good mm. job. I think, quite frankly, the relationship between the private sector and government is a disaster. Mm. I think that the private sector, based on their history, uh, don't trust government. They, they don't give government any credibility whatsoever. And I think that's a mistake. At the same time, I think government doesn't understand the private mm. sector. Very few of them actually come out of the private sector. What needs to be done, uh, Eddie? This is an important issue. I think, first of all, we need professional organizations. Okay. CZI, ZNCC, Chamber of Commerce, these guys have got to be made more professional. Mm -hmm. One of the great features of the old Rhodesian government was that the Commercial Farmers Union was a very, very powerful body. Mm. And when they spoke, the government listened. Mm. CZI the same. And in fact, today they are a shadow of what they were. Why? Oh, it's partly finance. Um, the, 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 the old white farmers used to organize themselves. One of the big problems of the Rhodesian government was that the black small-scale farmers were never mm. listened to. Mm. And even today, small-scale farmers do not have a voice, mm. a real voice. Mm. They need professional. You know, we need a... We need a, we need a I, an, an institute of directors which has real muscle. Mm. I mean, in Britain today, if the IOD makes a statement, it the is listened sits to. up and listens. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Eddie, you know, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. We could be here, you know, for, for another day. But uh, what a pleasure talking to you. Um, uh, so much wisdom from your uh, experience. As you know, we love books on this show.
tap into you the books that you are you you've read and that you want to recommend to our book loving audiences audience what books have you read that you want to recommend read the bible oh yes <laughs> i i became a christian when i was 17 i was ranching in madabila land and uh, i was dating a girl who was a presbyterian I went to Bulawayo one night looking for her and walked into a Baptist church and I became a Christian through that experience. And I must tell you, Trevor, I bought a Bible and I'd never possessed a Bible before then. And uh, reading the Bible, it just, it, it talked to me. It was an extraordinary experience. And I think anybody who's not discovered the, the the Bible as a basic manual for life mm. <clears throat> and uh, to get an understanding of who they are and and where we are in, in the context of creation mm. is is really really missing mis out. missing out yeah of course there's lots of marvelous books but uh, which are the which are two one or two that you'd want to recommend apart from the Bible and the one that you've just written. <laughs> Joe, sure. that's a that's a question I hadn't anticipated. <laughs> I'm an avid reader. Right. Uh, I read, and that's one of the things about Morgan Swangarai. You know, Morgan wasn't a well-educated man, but he read, he read. voraciously. Wow. Every time you went to see him, he had a book next next to his next to his next to his, on his table. Um, I like biographies. Mm -hmm. I've just written, uh, read a biography on uh, one of the early settlers of, of Zimbabwe, a guy who came here as a, as a chemist from mm. Cambridge University mm. in before the settlers came here in 1893 and became a photographer at Victoria Falls. Mm. And many of the famous photographs of the falls, of the, of the early life in the falls, came from him. Fascinating, mm. Fas absolutely fascinating story. Any chance of us getting a book on Eddie Cross? I've written. There's a book on Eddie Cross? I've written one. Not this one? No, but you'll, you'll have to wait until I, You're I, gone. I'm posthumous. <laughs> okay. I don't, I don't dare publish it. Uh, right. But okay. I, I think I have an idea of, of what it's going to sound like. Eddie, thank you so much for your time. What a, what a great pleasure um, talking to you. Thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to tap into your wisdom and experience thank you so much allow me eddie now to tend to our viewers we are who are in zimbabwe who are in africa and in the diaspora uh, thank you for watching this show thank you for supporting us remember we are a weekly show we are out on mondays central african time at uh, 7 a.m uh, to ensure that you don't miss out on any of these quality conversations, I invite you to click on this red button and subscribe. And if you do, you'll get an alert every time we have one of these quality conversations. Until next time, cheers to you all.